morning. Good morning. My name is Jesus. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's a joy to be with you all in this capacity this morning. If you're visiting, welcome. Uh, I am not the normal preacher here at the church. And so if you hold your breath for two weeks, he'll be back in a couple of weeks. But uh, open your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, it's page 916. Galatians chapter 5. This morning we're going to be starting a series for, that was going to last for four weeks. The series title is He Who Gives Life. And this is actually a continuation of a series that we had done earlier uh, this year. So we're going to tack on four more weeks to this series. Uh, the next two weeks I'll be with you speaking on the fruit of the Spirit. And then the two weeks after that will be Pastor Rick, and he'll be talking about uh, the gifts of the Spirit. And so this morning, we are looking at uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Okay. There are sermons on our website, cccLH.org slash sermons. The first part of this series, you can find it under the title, He Who Gives Life. And there's also a series that Pastor Rick preached several years ago on the book of Galatians. So we're overlapping kind of double here. But if you want to go hear more of this passage or of these messages, go to our website and those sermons are there. All right, so for this week, we're going to look at what is the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to start looking at uh, love this morning. And then next week, we're going to cover the rest and we're going to say, how do we use the fruit of the Spirit in our life, okay? All right, so let's read together. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, Enlighten your words to us this morning. Bring us your truth by your spirit through your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning we're talking about fruit, specifically the fruit of the spirit. And if you've read through the book of Genesis, it starts with a picture of God creating a garden. And in Genesis chapter 2, it says this, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God made this place. He gives the man all these trees, all this food that he can need. And he says, just don't eat from this one. There's a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as the story goes, the man disobeys. And he eats of the forbidden tree. And as his punishment, the Lord says this, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Two trees, two fruits, one that gives life and one that brings death. From the very beginning of Scripture, we see this imagery of fruit as a, as a theme in Scripture. It carries through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul picks it up as he introduces it to us through this idea of the fruit of the Spirit. So as we seek to understand the fruit of the Spirit, I want to answer a few questions this morning. Number one, who is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? Number two, what is the flesh? that Paul's talking about here. Number three, what is fruit? And then we'll, we'll get into love this morning. We're going to go kind of quickly through this portion. Like I said, plenty of other sermons. Feel free to, to listen to those. A lot more detail there, okay? So number one, who is the Spirit? First thing that we should know about the Spirit, He is God. He is God. Scripture declares that he is God. In Acts chapter 5, when uh, Peter is pronouncing a curse on Ananias, he says, you've lied to the Spirit. And in the next breath, he says, you lied to God. Scripture is clear. The Spirit is God. Second truth here, the, script, uh, the, the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. This goes back to all the way back to the early church fathers. Uh, the Nicene Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And the third idea here, the Spirit possesses attributes that only God does. Scripture tells us many attributes of the Holy Spirit. Some of them here, He's omnipresent. He can be everywhere. He knows everything. He's eternal. And those are things that are only attributable to God. So who is the Spirit? He is God. Second, He's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has, he has a mind. He has emotions. He has a will. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Think about this for a second. You can't grieve an impersonal force, right? When you turn the lights off, electricity doesn't get sad. It just goes off, right? You can't grieve an impersonal force. And Scripture tells us, do not grieve the Spirit because He's not a force. He's a person. 
It's important that we think about this, that he is a person. Because as we live our lives as Christians, we aren't just wandering around lost. The Spirit is with us. He guides us. When you're a child, ideally by God's design, your parents love you and they care for you and they nurture you. And as you, as you walk down the path, if they see you straying, they grab you by the hand and they say, hey, come back. That's, you're going to hurt yourself if you go down that path. And one of the pictures that Scripture paints for us of the Spirit is that that's how He guides us. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. John 14, These things I have spoken to you that while I'm with you, excuse me, these things I have spoken to you while I'm with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. My oldest is four. We do a lot of reminding. Remember? Remember? Last night she got her puppy taken away for the first time. Her little, sleeps with her little doll. She remembered, right? The Spirit reminds us, remember. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Thank you, Lord, that we have a guide. He's God, he's a person. Third, he's God's personal presence. In the Old Testament, the word used to describe the Spirit is, in English, it means like a, a wind or a breath. The word is ruach. And there's an energy in the word. Everybody, take a deep breath. You feel it? You feel it in you, right? There's life in that breath. That's the ruach. That's the spirit. Tim Mackey points this out. He says, like the wind is, the spirit is. The wind is invisible and the spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful and the spirit is powerful. We see its effects. That breath that you take in, it gives you life. And the spirit, in the same way, gives us life. Romans 8 says that the spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. He was there. He was involved. And in the Gospels, we see that Jesus sends the Spirit to his followers to live inside of them and to guide them after his resurrection. He's with us. He's personal. The fourth thing I want to point out about the Spirit so that we can understand him a little bit before we get into these fruits is that he has a job to do. He doesn't just wander, I mean, he does wander about, he goes, he's everywhere, but he's purposeful in what he does. The primary work of the Spirit is to reveal Christ to us and to make us like him. The Spirit holds our hand and he shows us how to live like Christ would have us live. He's our mentor, our teacher, our advocate. And this one, again, in, this, in the He Who Gives Life series, Pastor Jordan did a sermon on the work of the Spirit. It was excellent. He did a great job. If you want to understand this more, uh, go listen to Pastor, Pastor Jordan's sermon on the work of the Spirit. 
And so we see who is the Spirit? He's God. He's a person. He's God's personal presence in our lives. And he works for his purposes. Second question, what is the flesh? Paul here is talking about the works of the flesh, and he's contrasting them to the fruit of the Spirit. What is the flesh? Well, as you recall, in the garden, God made this garden, and what he said about it was that it was good. And he made the man, and he made the woman, and he made the, the land and the trees and the animals, the animals, and it was good. But when man made the decision to disobey, something changed. Something changed. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so spread, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That fall from grace that Adam brought us into affected every part of our being. Every part of our being. What was created good is now plagued by sin because of the choice that Adam made. This is where the origin of this idea of the flesh starts. Once sin came into the world, we as humans are no longer the way we were when God first made us. Now our hearts and our minds and our physical bodies, our, our hopes, our thoughts, our desires, they're all corrupted by sin. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he talks about the flesh in Galatians. This idea is not unique to Paul. I was having a conversation with someone a couple weeks back, and we were talking about the Old Testament. And I just, if you, if you open, if you look at your Bible, let's see. Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. This much of the Bible is the Old Testament. Right? And if you attend church long enough, you'll notice... We do a lot of talking about this side. And not a whole lot of talking about this side. You know why? Any guesses? This side is really ugly. This side is really bad. This side's bad too, but there's a little bit more explicit hope here. But as I was having this conversation with this person who was hurting, and they were just saying, how do I come to Scripture? Look at my past. Look at who I am. This is who we are. This, brothers and sisters, is who we are in our flesh. The horrific stories that we see in Scripture are not exceptional. This is who we are without Christ. This is what sin does to us without Christ. We see it here laid out in all its gory detail. Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Straight out of the womb. He didn't even have a chance. He was brought forth in sin. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Why is the heart deceitful? Sin. Sin ruined it. Without Christ, our hearts can't be trusted because they're under the effects of the flesh. 
The story of the book of Galatians, as we'll see next week, is another example of how this flesh plays itself out. One helpful picture to help us understand the flesh is in Romans chapter 7. Turn back a couple of books in your Bible there to Romans chapter 7. We'll look at verse 14. Romans 7, 14. Paul says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Go to verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Go to verse 21. So I find it to be a law then that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What the heck is this guy talking about? I know the right thing and I do the wrong thing and I want to do the right thing, but I can't do it. Is he losing his mind? What is he talking about? He's talking about the flesh. This is you. You look kind of like a penguin that needs to go on a diet. It looked better on my computer. It looks funny up here. This is you and your dark silhouette because sin has tainted you. This is your flesh. This is not a perfect analogy, but bear with me. Scripture says that when Christ comes into your life, you are indwelt by the Spirit. Paul calls it Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what we see here is Paul saying something like this. I can't do the right thing, even though I know what's right. And I know what I want to do, but I can't do it. Right? He's going back and forth and saying, look, there is a part of me that's real. Christ in me wants to do the good and the right and the righteous. But the flesh in me, man, that thing is strong. That thing is fighting. In verse 23, he says, But I see in my members a war waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is the flesh. The flesh is our fallen and corrupted human selves. Our body, our mind, our heart. And the flesh is who we are without Christ. The flesh is who we are without Christ. Turn back to Galatians chapter 5.
So we've seen who the Spirit is. We understand a little bit of who He is. We see what the flesh is. Paul gives us the works of the flesh here. And then here in verse 22, he starts talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And so let's just ask ourselves a basic question. What is fruit? What does it take to grow a piece of fruit? You need a seed. You need some dirt. You need some water. Some sunlight. Some air. You just take all those things and put them all together and then you get a, and then you get a fruit. Is that it? No. Even if you take all those things and you do it all correctly, is there a chance you still won't get a fruit? Yeah. What is that? Why is that? There's something more than just the materials that needs to happen for the fruit to be produced. There's a synergy. There's a cooperation. I think if you talk to a materialist, they'll say, yeah, it's photosynthesis, and here's the process, and carbon dioxide exchange, and all this other stuff. I don't think it's unfair to say, God's growing the fruit. We do the work. We put the ingredients together. We put the dirt and the seeds And we do our part, we water it, we get it sunshine, and God grows the fruit. Producing fruit is a very rich image in Scripture. It's used to describe all kinds of things, actions, praise, human offspring. Scripture calls human offspring the fruit of your womb. The metaphor has a broad range of uses, but in this context, what Paul is using it to, to describe is some form of results. When the Spirit works in your life, here are the results of that work in your life. And he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Has anybody seen this movie? This movie is on Hulu right now. You can check it out. It's called The Biggest Little Farm. And uh, if you have kids, it's great. They'll love it. The caveat, there's show some animals dying. Life's hard sometimes. Uh, but even as an adult, the, the, the story follows John and Molly Chester, who are city people, and they decide they want to start a farm. And they start a regenerative farming farm, which is a little bit even more beyond the standard kind of how a farm operates. And it follows their story, and what they find is that when they purchase this farmland, the dirt looks like the image on the left there. It's dry. It's broken. It's arid. Does that, look like it can, does that look like it can sustain life? Will you get a plant out of that kind of dirt? No. And so the journey is their journey as they seek to transform the dirt, the soil, from the left image to the right image, to something that can give life and sustain life. The story covers about 10 years in total, The top picture here is actually the start. They ripped out all the old dead trees. And they started with a blank farm. And eight years later, you see the lush green there. By their efforts, they're able to convert this farm into something beautiful. The farm is here in Moore Park. So it's a local thing. It's kind of cool. Spoken like a true city boy. What I got out of this movie, farming is hard. 
Never crossed my mind. Ten years. Ten years it took them to turn this plot of land around. Farming's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy, right? We're talking about fruit. My wife is very pregnant. This is what she's craving. Orange juice. It takes 13 pounds of oranges to squeeze one gallon of orange juice. 13 pounds. Imagine trying to eat 13 pounds of oranges. We just grab the gallon and pour ourselves a glass and off we go. What is this? A pineapple. Where do pineapples come from? Ralph's. Duh. Right? They grow next to bananas. And look, there's some orange juice. And they're on sale. This is where we get pineapples, right? Pineapple is actually the flower of of the plant. And one pineapple plant will give one fruit in about two years. Look at this picture. It's like 50 years worth of pineapple, right? And all we do is we say, oh, it's on sale. I'll take one. Two years to grow one fruit. How about this one? What is this? The nectar of the gods. If you disagree, there's a place at the back of the throne room for you. Where does coffee come from? The bean that we use to make coffee comes from a cherry. And the cherry grows on this plant. And the plant takes three to five years to start giving fruit. Most of the product is waste because you have to shuck the the cherry, the fruit, because we just want the, the bean. Three to five years to start giving fruit. And once it starts giving fruit, one coffee, one coffee plant will give one pound of coffee per year. Think about how much coffee is served in America. One pound of coffee per year. That's a lot of coffee trees somewhere out there, right? It doesn't even cross our mind. So we go to McDonald's and they serve it. Right? As Western American readers, we're so disconnected from the struggle depicted in this metaphor of growing fruit. It's slow. It's boring. It's labor-intensive. It's energy-intensive. We know none of that. We just go buy it. I want fruit. I go buy fruit. You look at this list of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to look at today and next week. It's not flashy. There's no fruit of exorcism. There's no walking on the water here. These character traits are forged in times of trial. and They take time to develop. The spiritual application here for us is one to make note of. What we're about to see in Galatians is going to take time. It's going to take energy. It isn't just going to happen overnight. And yet, 
if we're not diligent about doing our part, the fruit's not going to grow. We cooperate with the Lord to see the fruit grow. If you came up on a tree that looked like this, would you expect to see fruit from it? Why? It's dead, right? There's no life in this tree. What if I stapled some oranges on it for you? Would that convince you? Here's a tree. I can sell it to you. It has oranges. Why? Why do you shake your head no? You know better, right? That tree is dead. It can't sustain those oranges. You can staple all the oranges you want on there. It's not going to give life back to the tree. Jesus taught on a principle like this. He said this in John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. The message is clear here. Jesus has to be the center, the root, that alive tree in your life for you to bear this fruit. So you're a Christian, and you love Jesus, and he's going to bear fruit in you. What does that look like? John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is what the fruit of the Spirit in our life looks like. And so it makes perfect sense that here in verse 22 of Galatians chapter 5, first on our list, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. As we delve into the fruit of the Spirit, I want you to, to keep this in your mind. I think love is the central motivator for the rest of the fruit that we'll see next week. Love is the central motivator for the rest of the fruit that we'll see next week. It's not an exhaustive list that we're going to look at, but he chooses these qualities for this letter for these people. Again, we'll look at, we'll look at that next week. So what is love? Why is it so important that it goes first? Is it a burning ring of fire that you can fall into? Or was Tina Turner right? Second-hand emotion. Is that all it is? A feeling? The term love appears in every letter we have from Paul. He talks about it a lot. In English, we have one word for love. Uh, I love my wife, but I love cookies. And if I tell my wife, I love you, how does she know that I'm saying I love my wife or I love cookies? Especially if you write it. It doesn't work, right? 
There's no context there. In Greek, we have more than one word. There's three or four of them. There's a word for romantic love, for familial love, for brother, brotherly love. And the word here is this agape, this divine love. And so it's not as ambiguous here in the Bible when we read it, what Paul is saying. What is agape love? A couple of ideas. The essence of agape love is goodwill and benevolence and delight and the object of the love. Not of self, of the recipient, of the object of the love. Agape love involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. It is distinguished from the other types of love by its lofty moral nature and strong character. Functionally, this is what I like to use when I, when I talk to people. This agape love is giving for the needs of another without expecting anything in return. This is what love is. Giving for the needs of another without expecting anything in return. And so if we're called to love, how do we do that? How do we do that? I want to look at it a couple different shades. I want to look at what it's like to love in relation to God and what it's like to love in relation to others, okay? We're called to love. Why? Why should we love at all? John tells us we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. I'm going to make this statement. I look forward to hearing about your discussions in your community groups as you discuss it. If you disagree, you can email me at PastorRick at CCCLH. This is my thought, but I put it to you. The most important truth that we can cherish in the Christian life is that we are loved by God. As I talk to people, people struggle to, to believe the full gospel in daily life, daily life. What do I mean by that? What is the gospel? If we boil it down, I am a sinner, but Jesus saves. Is that fair? I am a sinner, but Jesus saves. Sure, it's more nuanced and it's more complicated and we can do that. That's fine. Bare bones. I'm a sinner, but Jesus saves. And I'll talk to someone and they'll say, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You weren't there. How could God forgive that? That was my foolishness. I'm a sinner. Or maybe it wasn't your own sin. Maybe somebody sinned against you. That parent that was supposed to love you and cherish you told you that you were the mistake of their life, that you were worthless, and you hear their voice haunting you. That partner that tells you you're trash, and there you are enduring. And the voice in your head tells you, hey, you're a sinner. You're not worthy. Nobody can love you. And I have the privilege to talk to that person 
And I get to tell them, but Jesus saves. But Jesus saves. Paul says, you were all of these things, but you were washed, and you were cleansed, and you were made new, and your heart of stone was turned to a heart of flesh, and your future is not your past. Because the full gospel is that I am a sinner, but Jesus saves. And when I trust the love of God, I can believe that full gospel. And there's some people that get stuck on the other side. They really know that Jesus saves. They really believe it. And they say things like, I know I get angry. It's just how I was raised. I'm Catholic, Irish Catholic. It's in my blood. Right? I know I work too much sometimes and I neglect the duties that I have at home. But God understands. God understands. I know I'm bitter about that thing that happened. God will change my heart. And to that person, I have to sit there and I have to tell them, hey, we are sinners. We need to repent of these things. And Jesus saves. But if we don't understand that God loves us, we're inclined to believe one over the other. We're afraid of the results of one over the other if we don't believe that his love is for us. There was a uh, British philosopher by the name of Freddie Mercury. And he said this, Each morning I get up and I die a little. I can barely stand on my feet. Take a look in the mirror and cry, Lord, what are you doing to me? I've spent all my years in believing you, but I just can't get no relief, Lord. Can anybody find me somebody to love? I work hard. He works hard. Every day of my life, I work till I ache my bones. At the end, I take home my hard-earned pay all on my own. I get down on my knees and I start to pray till the tears run down from my eyes. Lord, somebody, oh, somebody, can anybody find me somebody to love? Freddie, look for Jesus, brother. Jesus loves you. Freddie never found Jesus. Freddie died alone. Freddie died alone. Church, God loves you. God loves you. And when you forget that, you'll look for love and you'll look for affirmation in all kinds of other places. You'll date that non-believer. You'll go back into that relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. You'll put demands on the people in your life that could never fulfill your expectations. All in the search of love. And there's Jesus with his arms outstretched saying, I love you. Romans 5. God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
doubt his love, look to the cross. Ephesians 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. John 15, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. What is stealing your affections this morning? What keeps you from believing that God loves you? Ask him to reveal that to you this week. And if you're a Christian, make it your aim to cherish God's love for you. If this sounds crazy to you this morning, just start as a prayer. God, help me to want to love you. Help me to want to love you. So the fruit of the Spirit in our life is love, love toward God, and love toward others. Colossians 3 Therefore, as God's chosen people, bear with each other, forgive one another, and put on love. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The love of God in our lives will push us to love other people. This is what it does. I'll even say it this strongly. If you're not actively loving other people, you don't know the love of God. I don't have to say it. John said it. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Part of loving God is showing love to his people. Take a look at the person next to you in the pew who's not with you. Who's the next person you don't know? What's on their mind this morning? Do you know? Do you have any idea? When you sat down, did you think to ask? Were you looking for that opportunity to love them? If you come into the service as the music is playing and you rush out as soon as it's over to get that prime donut, that half, oh baby, it's just sitting there waiting for me. You're missing out on opportunities to love God's people. Don't miss these opportunities. They're here. Literally, they come here. They sat next to you. God brought them to you. Show them his love. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Be careful, Christian. Life is pretty good here in South County. The weather is nice. The cars are nice. The people are pretty. And the enemy wants you to be hypnotized by it all. And your flesh wants you to think, this is pretty good. Look at what you have. 
Look at how good life is. But Jesus is calling you to love others, to sacrifice, to give. Not things, people. And when we're able to cherish the love that God has for us, the Spirit will cultivate a heart for others in us. Lord, please grant us to know your love. Amen? I'll have the worship team come up. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we rediscover the tree of life again. We saw it in Genesis at the beginning, and remember that Adam was cast out of the garden, and he was forbidden from eating from the tree of life. Revelation 22 says this, Then I saw an angel, excuse me, then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. And no longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there. For the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Blessed are those who are saved by the blood of Christ. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Church, may we seek to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in this life so that when our days are over and we stand before God, He'll welcome us in and we'll have the privilege to eat of the fruit of the tree of life with Christ our Savior together. Amen? Father, Grant us fruit in our lives. Spur us where we need to be spurred, Lord. Awaken our hearts that we might do the work to see the fruit grow in us. That we might cultivate the ground so that you can grow the fruit in us. I thank you that because of your love we can offer this prayer not in fear, without doubt, that you will do these things. And so we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.